Nope. Well, uh, thank you for having me and thank you for the warm welcome I've received uh, coming down here. Um, some of you will know me, some of you won't, but um, pleased to meet you all and uh, pleased to be here. So um, if you can go ahead and grab a Bible, the passage we're going to be looking at today is Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 to 12. It's um, just a, a one-off passage. It's a, it's a great book, Ezekiel. I really enjoy it. I commend it to you for your own personal study, but um, very enjoyable to read. Um, I think it's uh, probably the, the Old Testament book that for me most clearly portrays the gospel, so that's probably one of the reasons I like it so much. Um, but hopefully you'll see that for yourselves in just a minute. So um, Ezekiel chapter 47 um, from verse 1 to 12. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate of the faces toward, that faces toward the east, and behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. The fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Eneglaim. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. It will be, the fi its fish will be very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh, they are to be left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water from the, for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So this is the, uh, this is the passage that we have today. Um, so, uh, some of you may know Mark Boyce, he also goes to uh, the church at uh, Harvest in Glasgow. Um, we have a bit of a shared interest in kind of nerdy history. So, um, he introduced me to a, a podcast a little while ago called The uh, History of the Roman Empire. Um, it, was, it basically covers the Roman Empire up until the fall of the Western Empire in 476 AD. Um, and I'm reliably informed he's now an expert. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, his, his mentioning of it coincided with a, a road trip to uh, somewhere in North Carolina. We were in America at the time, my, my wife Rachel and I, um, and I needed some listening material for the journey. So um, basically Spotify just so happened to advertise to me a podcast called The History of Byzantium. I thought, well, this is quite interesting. It's not a subject that I knew much about. I thought, 
I'll listen to that. That sounds sounds like it'll cover the the time the the ten hour odd road trip that we had. Um, so it covers the history of what is essentially the Eastern Roman Empire. Though the Western Roman Empire collapsed in the fifth century, the Eastern Roman Empire actually lived on for another millennium, only coming to an end in the fifteenth century. Um, in the podcast, one of the most interesting storylines that I have so far listened to is the story of Justinian. So he lived in the, the 6th century, so not long after the collapse of the Western Empire. Uh, and he was one of the most successful emperors to reign at any point throughout that empire's existence, the, the West included. Um, when he came to power, he ruled over an empire that consisted more or less of Greece, the Balkans, Anatolia, which is now Turkey, um, the Levant, so Syria, um, Lebanon, Israel, uh, Palestine, and Egypt. Uh, and so, so th this is quite um, impressive. That's a large area of land consisting of many modern-day countries, but was nevertheless a far cry from uh, how big the empire had once been. Um, and one of, if not the main driving factor in Justinian's lifetime was the restoration of that glory of Rome um, that he'd read about um, he attempted to do this in, in many ways, not just territorially, um, you know, so he codified the, uh, the, the Roman laws into a book to govern society. Um, he commissioned many impressive buildings, at least one of which is still standing today. That's the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. And um, he also attempted to restore the borders of the, the former Roman Empire. Um, and in the last, this last endeavor, he evidently tried the hardest so during his lifetime, he reconquered most of North Africa, nearly the entirety of the Italian peninsula, several large Mediterranean islands, and even swathes of Spain. Um, so if we look, at, uh, we look to the modern era, we can see similar motivations perhaps in Putin's invasion of Ukraine. You know, he's expressed before that the breakup of the Soviet Union was a great disaster in the 20th century. Um, and through his government's actions in places like Ukraine, Crimea, the Caucasus, um, it's evident he's trying to restore some of that former power and glory um, of the Soviet Union. Um, so at the time that today's passage was written, there was a similar dynamic afoot in the ancient kingdom of Israel. Um, centuries prior to this point in time, under Kings David and Solomon, the kingdom had been the preeminent power in the region. It had been fabulously wealthy, had a huge and impressive temple that had been erected in Jerusalem, to the worship of God, and to a large extent, the people had been united uh, in worshiping God. Um, but that all changed following the death of Solomon. Um, the kingdom was much diminished. Um, first of all, it was split into two, with the northern half seceding to form its own government under a new leader. Um, then the northern kingdom stopped following God entirely, um, and the, then the southern kingdom began to lose its way as well, with the people increasingly prone to trusting in other gods, uh, and the kings increasingly prone to trusting uh, their own strength and their allies' strength rather than in God's strength in order to maintain their kingdom. And finally, after this had gone on for a period of many years, uh, the northern kingdom was absorbed by Assyria and then the southern kingdom was conquered by the Babylonians, mm -hmm. essentially ceasing to exist as an independent nation. Um, in today's passage, we're met with a vision of this kingdom but not at some point in the past or present, but at some point in the future. Um, this is a vision of a kingdom that's not just been restored to its former glory, but it's surpassed what's gone on before. 
It's characterized by this impressive river, which flows down from the temple, um, and continually grows and grows um, and transforms the land in all these incredible ways. So it flows from the temple in Jerusalem all the way down to the Dead Sea to the east, causing trees to grow and flourish um, and bringing life even to the Dead Sea itself. Uh, but it's no ordinary river. Um, there's no river in Israel right now that follows that path, nor has there ever been such a river as far as I'm aware. Um, but since, so since it's, it's a part of Ezekiel's vision, it would be fair to say that it's not being viewed as a literal river. Um, it's, a re it's representative of something. Um, and to get an understanding of what that something is, I think we need to look a bit further back into Ezekiel and beyond. Um, now, a word of forewarning, if you are reading Ezekiel, it's very easy to get sidetracked because there's a lot going on. There's a lot of kind of mysterious um, and, and kind of impenetrable visions that, um, that are presented there. Um, there's so much imagery and there are, are so many parallels between the metaphors in Ezekiel and in other parts of the Bible as well, so you can really cross-reference it. Um, uh, and at one point in preparing this sermon, I did think that we might end up with a sermon on the whole book of Ezekiel today, but thankfully for you, I've managed to restrain myself. Um, so we'll, we'll be sticking to the, the 12 verses here, um, but we will be drawing upon what went before. So we should keep it within the two and a half hour time slot Derek's asked me to speak within. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, it's all right. We'll be over, we'll be over in the normal time period. Um, so the, the first point, restoration, knowing God saves us. So let's have a look at the source of the river. So the river starts in the temple. It's apparently just a trickle when it begins and it runs out from underneath one of the thresholds. Now there's nothing immediately significant, so it would seem, about the source of the river. You know, maybe there's just a burst pipe or a, an overflowing drain somewhere in the vicinity of the temple. We've all, we've all seen that kind of water bubbling up from a burst drain before. Um, or maybe it's a natural spring. But that wouldn't explain the river's supernatural properties. It's not ordinary water that's flowing. So let's look a bit more broadly. Maybe there's some other answers to where this river is coming from. Um, let's look at some of the clues. Um, so if we look at the passage from an, a wider angle, um, we can begin to see what was right back at the beginning. So let's look at what was. So first of all, this thing, this thing, this passage. The first, this first thing this passage made me think of, I should say, was the Garden of Eden. Uh, hopefully you're getting that vibe too. There's this lush landscape filled with trees. Um, they're always yielding fruit for food. Uh, the water is just life-giving and teeming with fish. Um, and on the banks of the river, there are animals of all kinds. So Eden is the first place that this glorious new kingdom harked back to. Um, the second parallel I see is a bit more direct. The temple is right here in verse 1, so the, the, the tabernacle or the temple. Um, it brings to mind uh, God's history with the people of Israel, traveling with them through the wilderness in the tabernacle, and eventually coming to rest in the permanent temple that Solomon erected in Jerusalem at the same, time, at the same site as this temple is that we're now looking at. So that's the, the second parallel I see. Um, now, there isn't an immediately obvious connection between Eden and the temple, um, but they do share at, le at least two things. This is looking at what God drove out. Um, so God met with his people in these places, and then that relationship that he had with his people was broken in these same places. So in Eden, uh, Eden 
Adam and Eve sinned and forced God to drive them out of the garden because he couldn't bear their sin to be in his presence. Um, in the temple, it's because the Israelites sinned that God was driven out. Um, so we can see this. Uh, this is where I'm talking about looking back. Chapters 8 to 11 of Ezekiel. I won't ask you to turn there and look through it, but back in chapters 8 to 11, we can see this happening. Um, so in, in the lead up uh, to this time, um, and indeed throughout the book of Ezekiel, the kingdom of Israel is at a fairly low ebb. Um, Nebuchadnezzar had recently conquered them with the Babylonians and deported many of their leading lights to Babylon um, and he'd installed his own puppet king in Jerusalem. Under this puppet king, Israel had carried on as they were, worshipping idols in the place of God. Um, and in chapter 8, verses 3 to 6, Ezekiel is, sh is showing is shown how the people of Israel have publicly and shamelessly erected idols in the temple. So they are openly, openly worshipping, the people of Israel are openly worshipping idols in the streets um, and in the countryside as well. Um, and in the vision, God speaks directly to Ezekiel, stating that this fact alone is sufficient to drive him from the temple. He can't stand to be in the presence of all this sin. Um, but there's worse going on inside the temple itself. Um, the, Ezekiel actually tunnels through the wall in his vision um, into the inner chamber of the temple and sees the leading men of Israel worshipping idols in it um, with their carvings and inscriptions on the wall deforming and defacing God's holy place. Um, this image really captures what's going on in the hearts of the Israelites in their own inmost being, they've rejected God. Um, they don't believe he sees what goes on in a person's heart um, and they don't really believe that he cares. Their, their, um, their ears are instead given over to their own desires. They've become twisted and warped just like the, um, the, the inner walls of the temple. Their hearts have become twisted and warped. Um, and worst of all though, uh, standing on the eastern steps to the entrance of the temple, they seem symbolically turn their backs on God, rejecting him and looking to the east as they worship the rising sun, worshiping what the creator has created instead of the creator himself. But how wrong they were to assume that God didn't care. In their attitude of rebellion and self-seeking, they also chose to rebel against their earthly king, the king of Babylon in this case, and try to reestablish themselves as a powerful, glorious, independent kingdom on their own terms. In chapter 9 of Ezekiel, we see a vision of what God wishes to do to the people of Jerusalem. Um, it shows an outpouring of God's wrath for all that the people have done and all that God has done, for, after all that God has done for them throughout their history. He can't bear to destroy them because his love for them still remains. So instead, he chooses to depart from the temple. Um, this, this sort of temple that's been so despoiled, he departs, his glory leaves but then we look at what has caused God to return. His departure doesn't mark the end of the story. God is just, and even though the people have wandered from him, they understand his character. They know that God intends to use the king of Babylon as his tool for punishment of their rebellion. They see this and they're afraid of their earthly fate, but more so they're afraid of God's divine punishment on them. They know that sacrifice is necessary in order to redeem people from their sin, and they know the severity of their own sin, but they also don't fully understand God's character. Their fear is that they've sinned so terribly that only a human sacrifice will be sufficient to appease God. So in, in the passage they declare, this city is the cauldron and we are the meat. No, that's too easy, says God. 
What use is a sinful sacrifice for the atonement of sin? Yes, you've grasped that your, your sinfulness is exceedingly bad and the punishment warrants death. But it's presumptuous of you to assume your body is sufficient to cover that. You've shown no desire to repent or to change your ways, despite being repeatedly warned. No, you're going to die. You're gonna, but you're not going to die here in this city. The punishment that they were truly deserving of was far worse than that. Instead, they were to be exiled from Jer Jerusalem, God's city, exiled from the promised land that God had promised their ancestors in perpetuity, cast out, scattered, and divided as a nation to die in foreign lands so that nothing of God's people would remain. They would die, and the kingdom of Israel would die. That was the fate they deserved. But thankfully for us, that wasn't the end of the matter. God promises people back in Deuteronomy that he would never utterly forsake them. Um, and if he is unable to, to stand their sinfulness, if sacrifice is the required atonement for sins, and if people are ineligible to be a sacrifice for their own sin, then what's the solution? I'm glad that God wasn't just making this all up as he went along, because we'd be in trouble right now if he was. Um, in chapter 43, so not, not long before this, we begin to get an idea. Um, a new altar is set up for the return of the Lord to the temple. It's the same altar as we see at the start of chapter 47 here, uh, which we'll get back around to soon. Um, on the altar, sacrifices are performed for seven days. Now, that might not immediately seem particularly important, but the number of sacrifices being performed is actually jam-packed with significance. In the ancient Near East at the time, seven was the number of wholeness or perfection. So we can immediately see that the sacrifice on the altar is to be this whole perfect sacrifice. In the seven days too, we see a parallel with the seven days in which God created the earth. The sacrifice therefore is to be restorative in a broader sense. Um, and again, we'll touch on that point in a minute. Um, it's interesting to note that the Lord's return actually precedes the sacrifice in chapter 43. Um, so he enters the temple from the east and then the sacrifice is offered. So the sacrifice comes after the Lord appearing. Um, in chapter 44, another character also appeared. This is the prince. Um, so the prince isn't introduced and the prince isn't in chapter 47 at all. Um, he just appears in chapter 44 out of the blue with no, no introduction. Um, but we can infer a lot about him from what he then does. Um, so the direction of his arrival and departure are significant. So he arrives and he departs from the east. This is the same direction that God arrives from in the preceding verses. And is the, he is the, also the only one who's permitted to sit and eat bread in the Lord's presence, this prince. So he must therefore already be perfect upon his arrival, since we know that God doesn't permit sin in his presence. It's easy to see parallels between this prince and the character of King David. Um, sitting, eating the bread of the presence, which is something that David also did before this, um, in his pleasingness to God, which is a characteristic that we see ascribed to David many times, and also in the fact that David himself is mentioned in chapter 37, um, not just having been a king over Israel in the past, but also to, so to be in the future. Um, similarly, we see the priest offering the sacrifice is none other than a member of the family of Zadok, the high priest during David's time, and the religious counterpoint to the political role of the king. 
So there's a, there's a whole lot more going on there that we could touch on, um, but for the sake of time, as I promised you, we're not going to take two and a half hours. We're going to leave it there. Um, but just remember what we've, we've, we've gone over there. Um, so since we know that this that we're reading in chapter 47 is a vision, and so are all the preceding passages, are a vision of the future um, and are intended to parallel it, um, how then is this, uh, this perfect sacrifice actually going to be achieved that we discussed earlier? Who are the, the characters here, Zadok and the, the prince, meant to be? Um, both of these characters, I think, we'll find, and the sacrifice itself, find the fulfillment in Jesus Christ and in his crucifixion. Um, we see this is made clear in many ways, um, from the small details to the large ones. Um, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem preceded his sacrifice on the cross, but, uh, just as the Lord's arrival in the vision preceded the undertaking of the sacrifice here. Um, and many aspects of Jesus' life also mirrored those of David, including his birthplace and his human lineage. Um, Jesus' divinity is foreshadowed in the vision by the direction of his arrival and departure, which mirror those of God himself. Um, and Jesus promises to intercede on our behalf and to minister to us, just as the priests of the order of Zadok do in this passage. And, of course, most importantly of all, Jesus' sacrifice was a perfect one. It's at the altar of the cross, therefore, and in Jesus' sacrifice on it, that we find the means by which God can return to restore his relationship with his people. This is how we start to get to know him. And it's through the altar that we see the beginnings of the outpouring of this river. See, in verse 1, the altar is the source of the river. It's not just a coincidence that the river flows out of the temple threshold next to the altar. The altar is actually its source and wellspring, this river of God's mercy and love. So restoration begins at the altar. And then on to point number two, reformation, knowing God changes us. If we acknowledge our broken sinfulness and we seek God's forgiveness, if we accept his sacrifice in our place, since we too were inadequate and sinful to make ourselves the sacrifice, if we turn to God and commit to living for him instead of rebelliously living for ourselves, then he offers us restoration. He doesn't just offer us that restoration of a relationship, though. He promises to reform us too, because knowing God changes us. Um, so first of all, God's mercy fuels our evangelism. When Ezekiel first sees the river here, it's only a trickle. But after a short while, when he first touches the water, it actually reaches his ankles. This is only a small increase in depth from a trickle, um, but it already demonstrates that changes are beginning to take place. Um, as the water laps around our feet, it washes them. Um, of the first things that happened, one of the first things that happened to us when we accept Jesus as our Savior is we're filled with excitement. We get kind of itchy feet. You know, we want to share what we've just discovered with everyone. Uh, hopefully you've experienced this as well. Do you remember that feeling when you first came to know Jesus? Um, just like the man in the parable who sold everything to buy the field with the hidden treasure and because he knew its value, he was, because he was so excited, we, we can get that same, that same feeling when we are first saved. Um, and we just can't keep it to ourselves. Um, but it shouldn't just be a passing whim. It shouldn't just be something that excites us initially. And then, you know, once we get over it, carry on as before. Um, when Jesus washes our feet, it doesn't just go skin deep. It soaks right in. Jesus washes disciples' feet to prepare them for their ministry. A ministry of evangelism and a ministry of humility. 
Um, when that initial excitement of knowing God wears off, it shouldn't just evaporate. When it's soaked into us, it gives us a, a deeper yearning to see others who are like us, lost, um, for them to experience not just an initial jolt of excitement, but to see them experience the lasting joy of knowing Jesus as their saviour and to experience the certainty of knowing his, that his sacrifice was sufficient. There's no turning back. There's no need to doubt or fear. But we do have doubts and we do have fears. And that's why the washing of our feet isn't just to prepare us physically to go. Uh, it's, it's also to prepare our hearts as well. Um, Jesus knew that his disciples were weak and frail. They had many, many um, issues in their hearts. Um, and he, but he also knew that they would try hard. So Jesus washed their feet to give them humility to trust in him for their ministry. Uh, in our daily lives, as we share the good news with others through our words and through our actions, we also can trust in God, knowing that he is preparing the way for us so we needn't doubt or fear that we are insufficient. He is sufficient to save us. There is no sin that we can commit that can thwart his salvation plan. He's sufficient to carry us and he's sufficient to save others as well. God's kingdom grows as we see his mercy multiplied. Um, and God's mercy grows our community. Uh, Ezekiel heads further down the river, and as it gets deeper, it goes up to his knees. And then he heads it along a bit further, and it comes up to his waist. But I've not seen any tributaries described in here. I know that's, you know, from, from standard grade geography, there's tributaries usually are required in order to make a river grow. Um, it just seems to be growing by itself, this river of mercy. Um, because as people come to know Jesus, the community of believers grows. Um, God didn't intend for, for believers to live in isolation. He intended them to live together as a community to support one another. Even when Elijah, although he felt like he was the only person left in the whole of Israel who followed God, um, it turned out uh, God showed him that there was actually a community to be found who would support him. Um, when we live in community, we rub off on one another. Uh, the way we act impacts on the practical aspects of others' lives, uh, but more importantly, it impacts on their thoughts and the spiritual aspects of their lives. Um, we tend to emulate those who we look up to, so parents, I'm uh, sure you're aware of just how much you see yourselves in your children, particularly if they say or do things that, you shouldn't, uh, that they shouldn't be doing after seeing you saying or doing the exact same things. Um, quite, a, quite a dagger to the heart, quite, quite eye-opening, isn't it? Eye -opening, isn't it? Um, likewise, we change our behaviours uh, based upon how others treat us, um, you know, based upon how others behave around us. Um, if there are things that we say or do that always receive a negative response, then we stop doing them. If there are things we always say or do that always receive a positive response, well, we carry on doing them and try and do them more. Um, when people treat us well, we tend to open up to them and share our vulnerabilities with them. Um, people are kind to us, we grow to like them and eventually to love them. If people hurt us, we try to hide that hurt. You know, we, har we can harbour grudges and treat them poorly in return. Um, the community of Israelites in the Book of Israel is a terrible example of what happens to a community that ignores God and his commandments. They started out by neglecting God in their daily lives. And then they started to entertain sins. They encouraged one another down that path of sin. Um, and eventually the entire community ceased following God. They walked down the path of destruction hand in hand. Um, 
But we have the altar, we have this perfect sacrifice, and we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And so as God's mercy soaks into us more and more, as his love permeates us, um, that love can't help but overflow for others. This community that we're in, um, if we continue to sac saturate one another with, the go with gospel teaching, um, with encouragements to live in light of this truth that we're looking at just now, with practical support and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we will continue to be formed and reformed into a community that reflects God. Uh, we'll be a community that roots out sin, learning from our mistakes and from the mistakes of others, forgiving one another and harboring a growing desire to see God and his righteousness manifest in one another's lives. So the king, as God's kingdom grows, we see his mercy multiplied. And God's mercy cleanses our inner self. As Ezekiel travels further down the river, it grows finally to become deep enough to swim in. In fact, it's so wide and so deep that it can no longer be passed through. It defies measurement. This is the work of God's mercy in our inner self. He doesn't just wash our feet or our hearts or our communities. When we live our lives for him and give everything over to him, he so deeply saturates and permeates us that we're nearly overwhelmed. That's what he intends for us. He doesn't scrub us up and dress us in nice clothes so that we can appear good. He sets to work on the inner self, purging us of all the infections and parasites and afflictions that we have through sin, which cause us such spiritual sickness and creating within us a cleanness and perfection, which he had always intended. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Our Lord is like the dentists. If you give him an inch, he will take a mile. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of some one particular sin in which they are ashamed, or which is obviously spoiling daily life, like bad temper or drunkenness. Well, he will cure it all right, but he will not stop there. That, that, may, be, that may be all you asked, but if once you call him in, he will give you the full treatment. That's why he warns people to count the cost before, before becoming Christians. Make no mistake, he says, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that is what you're in for. Nothing less or other than that. You have free will, and if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I'm going to see this job through. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you after death, whatever it costs me, I will never rest, nor let you rest, until, until you are literally perfect until my father can say without reservation that he is well pleased with you, as he said he was well pleased with me. This I can do and will do, but I will not do anything less. God's work in us is a work to grow his kingdom. His kingdom is not a, con a kingdom in the conventional sense, but is a kingdom of the spirit. As his spirit's work in us grows, his kingdom expands like the river until it's all-encompassing and we are one with him. Truly this is what we're made for, to have such an intimate relationship with God that we, we can no longer be found anywhere but in him. Enoch walked with God and he was no more, for God took him. And again, God's kingdom grows as we see his mercy multiplied. And then on to the final point, revolution. Knowing God transforms everything. We've seen so far that God has made a way to restore our relationship with him and then he has given us his spirit to reform us and our community of believers 
for the sake of his kingdom. Now we will look at what God's doing, what God's work is doing across the world, beyond the borders of our own hearts and beyond the doors to the church. We'll look at the revolutionary effect of God's transforming work on all of creation. First of all, the physical world. You might not necessarily think of the natural world when you think of God's work. We're often prone to think of people first and their salvation and sanctification. But it's worth remembering that God gave humanity responsibility for the natural world. Back in Genesis, when God placed man on the earth, he instructed him to fill the earth and to subdue it and have dominion over it. Uh, and much like every other thing that God has asked of humanity, we, we failed at it. Um, exploitation of the world's natural resources has been done in an unsustainable and an increasingly damaging way, um, depleting the populations of nearly all other, all other species on earth besides ourselves um, and causing huge numbers of them to go extinct with up to a million species classified currently as under threat. Fish stocks are collapsing, ecosystems are being wiped out by deforestation and intensive farming practices, and the global temperature is rising every, every year, quite possibly and almost certainly driven by man-made carbon emissions. In the same way as we deal with sin, we recognize the problem and make an effort. Sustainable farming practice are, practices are beginning to be adopted. People are changing their lifestyles to reduce our levels of consumption, Areas of land are being set aside as reserves and trees are being planted to try and recover the forests that have been lost, as well as to counteract the carbon dioxide being released into the atmosphere. But it feels like, to some extent, the battle is already lost. As with sin, it feels like without divine intervention, there's little that can be done. Um, as Ezekiel walks along the banks of the river in our passage, well, he sees a world transformed. Here's a world in which people live in harmony with nature. Wherever this river flows, living creatures live, and there are fish in abundance. Trees of all kinds are growing, yielding leaves and yielding fruit. The world that Ezekiel sees here in this passage is a paradise for the average city dweller who gets to see a few trees and maybe a pigeon every day or so. Um, but this, this is the world that God intended for us to live in, um, as, it, as it should have been if sin hadn't entered the world. Um, and we have a part to play in revitalizing the world that we live in and tending to it. Um, but only through God's work will we be ever able to witness a world as glorious as the one that Ezekiel sees here. God also transforms the spiritual world. The effects of the river are spiritual as well as physical. We already saw the changes God intends to make to us and through us in our immediate proximity. But he has a much larger vision than a few isolated pockets of believers in an otherwise sin-filled world. He intends for the world's physical restoration, and th through his work on the altar, he also intends for its spiritual restoration. Trees grow on the banks of the river, and they bring forth fruit and leaves. Are we the trees in this image, or are we to be sustained and healed by the trees? I think you can see the imagery both ways. We need God's provision and healing in our lives, and are helpless and hopeless without it. With God's help, we are also called to be fruitful in terms of our spiritual output. Um, we are to live in such a way as demonstrates the inner transformation wrought by God's Spirit. Um, that should serve to encourage us and demonstrate the value of what we believe in, um, and it should also serve to bring healing to the world. Um, these purposes, which are mirrored by the fruit and the leaves of the tree in this passage, are clearly demonstrated in the New Testament in Jesus' own ministry. He teaches his disciples through his words and through his actions, 
and he heals those around him in their body and in their spirit. Um, while we don't have the power to forgive others their sins, we do have the power to tear down or to build up, to destroy or to heal, just as we have the power to do that in the natural environment. Um, if we choose to live for God, then that creates a distinct culture beyond what is incubated by our small community. It impacts society. Um, to think of only a few examples of many, Christians following Christ's example of caring for people's physical ailments have set up hospitals and been inspired to bring medical care for the poor and downtrodden over the years. Christian art has left a lasting legacy in the artistic world with the works of Michelangelo continuing to wield influence, just as one example. Um, the literary works of writers such as St. Augustine, John Bunyan and Dostoevsky continue to influence uh, in our thought in our current time. Uh, and the laws and the norms of countries around the world are shaped to a massive extent by Christian morals. The list goes on, but we wouldn't have time to cover all of the uh, contributions that Christians have had to world society over the years. These are the kinds of impacts that the work of the Spirit can have through us in the world today. If only there were more. And of course, God changes eternity. We long to see the restoration of God's glory in this world. Um, and as we look to the future, we also look back to what was. When the Roman Emperor Justinian reconquered Rome, he held a triumphal procession through the streets of the Roman capital to celebrate his achievement. And indeed, it was quite an achievement. Um, in his lifetime, Justinian nearly doubled the size of the empire, and the result was a domain which was unrivaled by any other. Um, but within a century of his passing, nearly all the territory that he had conquered and more besides had been lost, never again to be recovered by the Roman Empire. Will Putin succeed in conquering Ukraine? I hope not, but even if he does, it won't last. It won't be forever. No human achievement in this life can last like that. Psalm 103 verses 15 to 17 says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. For the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children. In these verses, we see that everything we do outside of God will not last. Everything we do in this life remains tainted by sin. The possibility of smugness or pride lurking behind every good deed, unintended and sinful consequences waiting to spring up from good acts, People hurt by words spoken with good intention. This is the world that we've been living in since humanity first sinned. When we look to the past, we can see it in the river which flowed out of Eden, dividing and becoming the, the Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. These were rivers that watered the land and gave life to their surroundings, but which also flooded and ran dry and can become polluted. But there is another river which never runs dry or floods, a river which is never polluted and which mirrors the river in Ezekiel's vision. We find that in the final chapter of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22. This river gives us hope. It's the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In this river, we see true and full meaning in Ezekiel's vision, the ultimate realization of God's purposes. Gone is the altar. It's achieved its purpose. In its place is a throne. Gone is the dark shadow cast by the pollution of sin. It's replaced by light and goodness and vitality. Unlike us, God does not look to the past for a vision of the future. 
He doesn't need to revive some vestige of a bygone era in order to restore his glory. He has something far better in store, a new and a greater glory than has ever been seen. This is, the river that, that, uh, that is this is what the river is flowing towards. This is the reality that awaits us in eternity. We look back, we see that the restoration work began at the altar. We look around us and we see God's reforming work in our lives. And we look forward and we see that his coming work will be completed in eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this vision that we've seen, this vision that you gave to Ezekiel. Um, one that uh, lays bare our own sinfulness, um, our need for a saviour, but also one that points us forward, points us towards the hope that we have in you, um, the hope of a, a certain and a, a bright future. Um, and Lord, we, um, we know that there's still work to be done now around us. Um, there's still work for us to do um, to help with the, the, the restoration and the reflection of that glory. Um, Lord, I pray that you would equip us to do that, equip us to um, look at ourselves, look at our own lives, um, equip us to live together in community um, so that we might fulfill that purpose that you have for us um, and so that that uh, glory that we look forward to is something we can be a part of, something that we can ha place our hope in. Um, Lord, we thank you that we know that that's certain, that there's nothing can take that away. Um, so, Lord, we, uh, we look forward with great anticipation um, and we, we trust you for, for our strength. And we pray this in your name. Amen.